So good to have you with us tonight. We're in for exciting times. You look at God's word together. Let's bow for a moment of prayer. Father, thank you, Lord, for today. You are a great God, and we are so blessed to be able to gather together to study your word in the middle of the week. And our prayer, Father, is that you'd open our hearts and minds to, to be able to behold the beauty of your name. <clears throat> our prayer, Father, is that, Lord, you'd um, make our ears receptive to your truth. And that, Father, whatever distractions that uh, came our way today and on our way in this evening, we pray that you'd erase those from our minds, that, Lord, we'd be able to think clearly and be able to operate in a way that honors and glorifies your precious name until you come again, as you most surely will, in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to pick up where we left off last week on our third point of our outline when it comes to understanding how to build a biblical marriage that honors and glorifies the Lord. And that third point was that you need to commit yourself to growing spiritually. Your growth spiritually is important to every relationship you encounter, especially when it comes to your marriage, because you want to be able to portray Christ to whoever you come in contact with. That's absolutely essential. But growth doesn't happen immediately. It takes time. It's like your children. You know, when you give birth to your kids, none of my children ran out of the womb. They were pulled out of the womb, right? None of them welcomed me with open arms saying, hey, Dad, great to see you. Why? Because they couldn't speak. So we had to, to train them over time. We had to train them on how to eat so that they could begin to eat by themselves, how to walk. Uh, first of all, how to stand, then how to walk, then, then how to run. And it takes time for, for children to be able to progress spiritually. They don't just come out of the womb ready to drive a car and go off to college. No, it takes time to get there. Well, the same thing is true spiritually. In the, in the spiritual realm, it takes, it takes time for us to get to where we need to be, but we need to be diligent in getting there. And so we wanted you to understand that, as Peter says in 2 Peter 3.18, we are to grow, keep growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, our God is a God of grace. And as we study his word, we begin to understand more about the, the grace that saves us, the grace that sustains us, the grace that secures us, the grace that is, is, is all sufficient toward us to help us through every situation. And so as we begin to grow, we begin to understand more about God's wonderful grace, the person and character and nature of God. And we're to grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it just takes time to do that. And so the Bible says in Acts chapter 20, verse number 32, these words. Acts 20, verse number 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul tells the Ephesian elders right before he departs, he says, look, I'm going to commend you to God and the word of his grace because that's what builds you. That's what strengthens you. The word of God's grace is going to build you up. And it's going to give you an inheritance that you will begin to understand with all those who are like, of like precious faith, those who are saints. And that's where we said your growth begins. It begins with, with an eternal or divine inheritance. Everything begins with a divine inheritance. And this point is so precious. You need to understand this. Remember we took you to 1 Peter chapter 1 last week where Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead 
to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will be not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. To unpack all that is just, is just enormous. But Peter's saying, you, you've obtained an inheritance. What's the inheritance? The inheritance is eternal life. We know, that, we know that because that's what the Bible tells us. We realize that our God is a God of life, and he gives us his life. You know what an inheritance is. It's something that's passed down freely from one generation to the next generation. It's a gift that is passed down. You don't earn it. It's just passed down to you. And our Lord has given this great gift, Romans 6, 23. We know that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's why Paul would say in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 9, 15, thanks be unto God for his indescribable gift. And what's the gift? The gift is eternal life. And Christ says, I didn't come just to give you life. I came to give you an abundant life. I came to give you, give you the greatest of all lives. And so when Paul would begin to preach, the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 26, these words. Acts 26, verse number 17, when he talks about what God has did for him in terms of his responsibilities as an apostle, he says, I was called to open the eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. The inheritance is the life that God himself gives to us because of his great provision of grace. In fact, over in uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse number 24, Paul says, Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. In other words, everything about life begins with a divine inheritance. Why? Because if you're going to grow, you have to have life. And God gives life. But listen, that's not the best part. Think about this with me. If you go back to the Old Testament, to the book of Joshua, you realize that the nation of Israel, in Peter's writing to Jewish people, right? So the Jewish people would know about this. And so if you go back to the book of Joshua, Joshua was to allot portions of the land of Canaan to the different tribes of Israel. And they would go in and they would obtain that land because that was their inheritance. It was the land. But as you recall, there's one tribe that did not receive any portion of the land. And that was the tribe of Levi. So when you go all the way back to the book of Joshua, chapter 13, it says this in verse number 33. But to the tribe of Levi, Moses did not give an inheritance. Why? It tells us the Lord the God of Israel is their inheritance. Isn't that great? He didn't give the tribe of Levi an inheritance, a portion of land. Why? Because the Lord God of Israel is their inheritance. In other words, the tribe of Levi was the priestly tribe. And the priestly tribe had to know God and walk with God and live for God and had to represent the people to God and God to the people. So God says, I'm not giving you a portion of land. Why? I'm giving you me. You have me. That's your inheritance. 
Now listen, you go to the New Testament, we are called a priestly nation. We are a chosen generation, 1 Peter 2, 9, we are a royal priesthood, right? Revelation 1, 6 says that we are a kingdom of priests. And as priests, what is our inheritance? It's the life that God gives. And what's the life that God gives? It's his life. He says to us, I am your inheritance. What better inheritance can there possibly ever be than the Lord Jesus Christ himself? And so as it was with the tribe of Levi, so it is with people like you and me who are priests in God's kingdom. We have God's life. Remember what God said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. He said these words, he says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you. I am your very great reward. Abraham, listen, you need to know something. No matter what happens to your son, no matter what happens to the land, no matter what happens to your people, I am your reward. I am your everything, Abraham. You see, that's what God does when he grants us a divine inheritance. We inherit God, the God who is the God of life. We inherit his life. And Peter is writing to people that were persecuted and suffering for the, for the name of Christ, and Peter wants them to understand, listen, you have obtained a divine inheritance, a heavenly one. It goes way beyond the physical inheritance your forefathers received, you receive the life of God himself. This is your inheritance. This is your blessing. And the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 2, 9, that eye has not seen, nor has ear heard, nor has it entered the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. And he's given us his Holy Spirit, first, uh, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 11, as a down payment for that inheritance. He's given us his spirit. And therefore, because he's given us the spirit, he's given us the divine comforter because that's who the Holy Spirit is. He's given us peace because the Holy Spirit is the God of peace. He's given us life because the spirit of God is, is life. He gives us direction and guidance because the spirit of God guides us into all truth. Our Lord has given us everything that we need simply because we have been recipients of the eternal gift of life granted to us by God. And so everything about your spiritual growth begins with the divine inheritance. That's where it all begins. It begins with the fact that you have life. And because you have life, you can grow. If you don't have life, you can't grow. But if you have life, you're growing. At least you should be growing, right? But that, that which begins with the divine inheritance, number two, we covered this last week, is balanced by a disciplined obedience. In other words, we are working on our salvation, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. We are working on our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it's God who is at work in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. God's at work in you and me. But there's a discipline that's there. 2 Timothy 1, 7, what does God say? I've not given you a spirit of fear. I've never given you a spirit of timidity. But I've given you a spirit of love, power, and of discipline. That's the spirit God gives us. For someone to say, you know what, I, I just lack discipline in that area. That, that's a problem with your relationship with the Lord God of Israel. It's, 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 you're not understanding the spirit of discipline that resides within you. 
God has not given us a spirit of timidity, a, a spirit of fear. He's given us a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. So he could say in 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, 6 and 7, excuse me, he says, discipline yourself unto godliness. Why? Because bodily exercise profits little. But exercising yourself to godliness profits for eternity. But there needs to be a discipline in our lives where we are working hard at living the life God wants us to live. We just don't wake up one day and grow spiritually. No, we have to be in the Word. So we told you about some of those spiritual disciplines. So the first one was the spirit of, or the discipline of supplication. I'm, not, I'm sorry, the, the discipline of, of Scripture. That's number one. Why? Because without the discipline of Scripture, we can't grow spiritually. We need to be in the Word day and night, always meditating, always memorizing God's Word. And I got the best tool for you. I got the greatest opportunity for you. This is the best way for you to exercise discipline in, in your spiritual walk. On Sunday, we're going to advertise for you the book, I promised you in January, The Christ of Christmas. And this is going to be your opportunity to not only get this book, but to discipline yourself when it comes to the scriptures. Why? Because for 25 days in the month of December, we as a church are going to go through this. And you have an opportunity to go through 25 different prophecies to understand the coming of the Messiah. And there's an Old Testament verse, the prophecy foretold. There's a New Testament verse, the promise, the promise, the prophecy fulfilled. And all you have to do is begin to understand what God is doing. And so you're going to study the Word of God. You're going to hear the Word of God. You're going to listen to the Word of God. You're going to share it with your children. You're going to share it with your wife. And have the opportunity to go in depth to understand who is this Messiah. Why? Because you have to believe that Jesus is the Messiah in order to be saved. Right? John 20, 30 and 31. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that believing in him you have life in his name. You can't become a Christian unless you understand that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel. So we give you the opportunity. You'll have 50 verses, 50 references, one Old Testament reference, one New Testament reference. Now, the book is filled with all kinds of Scripture, but you're going to have two references to understand. So you'll have 50 references on those 25 days that you can go through with your children, teach them to your children, that you can meditate upon, that you can memorize because you want to saturate yourself with the scriptures. And this becomes the perfect tool for you to use in the month of December. Before that, you're, gonna, you're on your own, right? You're going to have to be in the Word on your own. Now, you can look at it in advance as you are able to, to get your copy of the book. But to understand this, this is an opportunity that God's going to give you to be in the Word of God. It's a discipline. It's not easy. You know as, hard, as well as I do, it's hard to be in the Word every day. But you know what? That's what God's called us to do. Why? As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the Word, that you may grow thereby. Unless we hide God's word in our heart, treasure it in our heart, we will sin against the Lord. But if we treasure it there, we won't sin against the Lord. It's imperative that you be in the word of God. It's a discipline. It's not easy. And not only the discipline of scripture, but the discipline of supplication. You've got to be on your knees. And think about how hard it is just to get up every morning, for those of you who are involved in our prayer chain, to get up and pray every day, 15 minutes, just for the families of our church. It's a lot of work, but it's a discipline. And it doesn't come easy. But you know what? There are great rewards in discipline. It's like when you want to lose weight and you go to the gym, right? It doesn't come easy. 
You're not losing 10 pounds in one day. Nobody does that. It takes time. But if you stick with it and you discipline yourself, you'll see, you'll see the, the, the results. You'll reap the benefits. The same is true with the Word of God. The same is true with prayer. Being on your knees every day, so important. That which began with the divine inheritance is balanced with the discipline of obedience. Discipline of Scripture, supplication, silence, solitude, self-denial, self-scrutiny, surrender, service. And the list goes on and on. And the Bible's filled with all kinds of spiritual disciplines that we need to be engaged in. Now, I know I'm going through this rather quickly. In 1997, I did a series called Invitation to Intimacy. How to be intimate with the master. How to walk hand in hand with the master. It took me 22 weeks to get through that series. And what I'm covering with you last week and tonight are what took me 22 weeks to cover back in 1997. If I, if I did it today, it would probably take me 42 weeks. But it took me 22 weeks way back when. So you can go back and you can listen to those online. You can study those on, on your own. But they give you a more in-depth detail on the discipline of Scripture. What does that look like? The discipline of silence and solitude and self-scrutiny. What does that look like? How does that happen every single day in my life? But you know what? That which began with a divine inheritance is balanced with the disciplined obedience. Now we're ready for point number three, and that's this. It blossoms in a desert experience. Your spiritual growth is going to blossom in a desert experience. There's times where your spiritual life becomes ho-hum, the doldrums. You kind of get stuck in a rut, right? And there's nothing wrong with that because you need to work through those things. It's a daily grind of discipline. But there's something about the desert experience. There's something about the dry place. There's something about the place of isolation. There's something about the place of difficulty. There's something about the place of tragedy. There's something about the place of loneliness that does something for you that nothing else can Psalmist said it this way in Psalm 119. He said this, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Psalm 119.67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. If you read through Psalm 119, the psalmist speaks about his love for the word of God. His passion for the truth of God. His submission to the ordinances of God. But he makes it very clear that before his affliction, he did his own thing. He did what he wanted, acted as he wanted to act. But now he keeps the word of God. There is something about affliction there is something about that desert experience that drives you to the truth of God's word. He would go on and say this, verse 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. It was good that I was afflicted because I need to learn your statutes. In other words, I wasn't learning your statutes when I wasn't afflicted. But now that I am afflicted, now I'm learning everything I need to know about who you are and what you have said. There's something about affliction 
There's something about isolation. There's something about the dry place, the desert experience that drives you to the scriptures that nothing else does. I wish it worked another way. It doesn't. And the scriptures make it very clear. In fact, he goes on to say this. Verse 76. I'm sorry, verse 75. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Oh, may your loving kindness comfort me according to your word to your servant. I know, Lord, that in your faithfulness you afflicted me. Now, Lord, I need you to revive me and comfort me according to your word. He would go on to say in verse number 92, if your law had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. If your law had not been my delight and missed my affliction, I would have perished. He goes on to say in verse number 107, I am exceedingly afflicted. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. There is something about affliction. There's something about tragedy. There's something about difficulty. There's something about hardship and pain and isolation that drives me to the word of God. Because where else does the believer go? There's no place else to go. And so you're driven to the truth. You're driven to the Lord to understand who he is and what he's done. And you know the perfect illustration of this. The perfect illustration is Job. Remember what God's testimony was of Job? God said that Job was the greatest man on the planet. I'm not sure that God would say that about any one of us in the room. But about Job, he did. Greatest man on the planet. He was one who was upright, blameless, feared God, and turned away from evil. Those were God's words about Job. He was a God-fearing man. He was a blameless man. He was an upright man. And he kept turning away from evil. That's what happened to him. And yet, he suffered severe affliction. Severe, why? Because no matter how upright, how blameless, how God-fearing you are, how much you turn away from evil, let me tell you something. There's something that moves you to grow faster, deeper, and better when affliction comes your way. If Job needed affliction to drive him to his God, how much more so do we need that desert experience to drive us to the word of God? So Job would say these words. Job would say in Job chapter 23, verse number 10, but he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot is held fast to his path. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. But he is unique, and who can turn him? And what his soul desires that he does, for he performs what is appointed for me. And many such decrees are with him. Therefore, I would be dismayed at his presence. When I consider him, I am terrified of him. It is God who has made my heart faint and the Almighty who has dismayed me. But I am not in silence by the darkness nor deep gloom which covers me. Job says something 
astronomical as he knows that God is true and he is in his faithfulness, afflicted him, and everything happening to him has come about because of God. But he's not there yet. So when you come all the way to the end of the book of Job, Job 42, Job answers the Lord. Remember, God never gave Job what? An explanation. He only gave Job a revelation. God never explained to Job, Job, this is what happened. Let me explain to you how Satan came to present himself before me one day. We had this conversation, and I offered you up to Satan. I let Satan have his way with you, but he couldn't kill you, Job. You lost everything because I gave Satan the opportunity to test you, to try you, to afflict you. And he did. Now, we know that because we read the book. Job didn't know that. Job never knew that. He was never explained why. But he was told who. And God began to reveal himself to Job as he spoke to Job. And this is Job's response in chapter 42. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I know that now. Lord, you can do anything you want. And whatever your purpose is, it cannot be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. All God did was reveal the power and purpose of his existence before Job. All he did revealed to him the greatness of his creation and all that he's done. And Job says, hear now and I will speak. I will ask you and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Job readily admits that even though he was blameless, God-fearing, upright, turning away from evil, he said, I've only heard of you with the hearing of my ear, but now finally I have seen you. When did Job ever see God? Answer, he never saw him with the physical eye. So how did he see him? He saw him with the spiritual eye. Why? Because God revealed himself to him through the Speaking of his words, God revealed himself to Job through the words that he gave him. And Job was able to see his God simply by hearing his God speak. So the Bible says in Matthew 5, verse number 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Yes, you're going to see God in eternity. But there's something about the spiritual eye that allows you to see God. In fact, the Lord said it this way. In John chapter 14, verse number 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him. And I will disclose myself to him. I will manifest myself to him. How does God manifest himself to you and me? We know the answer. The answer is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse number 18. 
we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. In other words, when we open the perfect law of liberty, when we open the word of God, it's like a mirror. And in the perfect law of liberty, I see the glory of the Lord. And when I see the glory of the Lord, I am being changed. I'm being transformed from one level of glory to the next level of glory, even as by the Spirit of God. And so it's the Word of God that reveals God to us. That's why the disciplines are so important in the discipline of Scripture. But your growth blossoms in a desert experience. Maybe you're going through that right now. I have no idea. Maybe you're going through a turmoil right now in your life that's turning your insides outside. And all of a sudden, your life's a mess. You gotta ask the Lord, Lord, whatever you're doing, I need you to reveal yourself to me. That before this affliction, I did whatever I, I wanted to do but drive me to your word, to keep your word, to understand your word, because through that I begin to understand you. You see, Christ is seldom a reality until he first of all becomes a necessity. Why is it we don't experience the reality of God in our lives every day? Because we live as if we don't need him. Christ is seldom a reality until he first of all becomes a necessity. And what does suffering do? It burns out shallowness. That's what it does. Brokenness and suffering burn out the shallowness of our lives. And God knows that. That's why in Hebrews 12, verses 5 to 11, it speaks about how a father disciplines his child, so the father disciplines us, right? So that we might bring forth the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's why in James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, it talks about counting in all joy, brethren, when you fall into various trials, knowing that the trying of your faith produces patience, right? And don't you know that in John chapter 15, there's that whole process, the pruning process of the vine that the Father's involved in. He's the vine dresser. We're the vine. And the pruning process is a painful process. But in there, he says in John 15, I want you to bear much fruit, not just fruit. I want you to bear a lot of fruit. And the only way you're going to bear a lot of fruit is for me to prune away all those things that are distraction to your walk with the Lord, all those things that hinder you from keeping close to me. I'm going to strip all those things away that you might learn to walk in a way that honors and glorifies me. This is so important. We need to grow spiritually. Why? Why? Because in my marriage, I am representing God to my wife. My wife is representing Christ to me. That's what makes a relationship pure and true and holy. That's what makes it so good. But when I stop doing that, I can't paint an accurate picture of Christ's relationship to the church. And so the Lord will stop at nothing to make me holy. The Bible says, be holy for the Lord your God is holy. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. Matthew 5, 48 says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. 
And so how does that happen? Yes, I'm in the scriptures. Yes, I'm on my knees. Yes, I'm by myself, in my room, in prayer. Yes, I'm examining my life. But there's something that that propels me into the depth of the riches of Christ. And that's the tragedies that I go through. The difficulties that I face. The pruning process that Christ puts me through. That I might come out the other side like gold. And Job, if the greatest man on the planet had to go through what he did, if the most upright, God-fearing man who turned away from evil, who was blameless, had to go through what he did to see God, what must we need to go through in order for us to see the true and living God? That is so important. That doesn't mean that you're going to be stricken with cancer tomorrow or doesn't mean you're going to be in a car accident or your family's going to die or all that kind of stuff. It, it could involve that. It could. I'm not going to tell you that it's not going to. I don't know. But every one of us goes through stages in our lives where we face the difficulties and the hardships of life. Every one of us does. And they're not easy. But they drive us to our knees. They drive us to the Word of God. Like Job, like Joseph, like the Apostle Paul, like Moses. He experienced his desert. His lasted 40 years. 40 years, he was on the backside of a desert. And when he came out, he came out a different man than when he went in. Because God had to refine him. God had to break him from his self-reliance. He had to break him from his independent spirit. He had to break him from his self-sufficiency to make him totally dependent upon God himself. Because 40 years earlier, he thought he could pull off the exorcist. After all, he was next in line to be the Pharaoh. After all, he was raised in the finest school system of the day, the Egyptian educational system. He was raised in immense wealth. But none of that made him fit to lead the people of Israel out of bondage. He had to be humbled, broken. All of that shallowness in his life had to be shattered. It took God 40 years to do that in the life of Moses. And when he comes out of the desert at the age of 80, he was a brand new man. Because now he was walking with God. And that man became Israel's greatest leader. But God had to break him first. Why? Because his growth, like yours and mine, blossoms in a desert experience. Because it drives us to the truth. It drives us to our knees that we might grow in our walk with the Lord. So, If my growth begins with a divine inheritance, balanced by a disciplined obedience, blossoms in a desert experience, ready for this? It will be battled with a diabolical vengeance. It will be. It will be a war. Why? Because Satan doesn't want you to walk with God. 
Satan doesn't want you to represent God effectively. Satan doesn't want your marriage to work. Do you know there are only four chapters in the Bible where Satan is not present? Did you know that? Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, Revelation 21 and Revelation 22. In Genesis 1 and 2, what do you have? Paradise. In Genesis 21 22, what do you have? The eternal state, paradise. But in between those four chapters, Satan is everywhere. Why? Because he's the prince in the power of the air. He's the ruler of this world. He will stop at nothing to destroy your testimony. He will stop at nothing to destroy your marriage, destroy your church, destroy your family, compromise, everything you stand for. When you begin to grow spiritually, your spiritual growth will be battled beyond anything you can ever imagine. You're engaged in warfare every single day. And that's why the Bible says these words. If you go back to 1 Peter chapter 5, it talks about verse 6. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in the proper time. Why do you do that? Remember the mighty hand of God is, is a phrase used in the Old Testament when it comes to the destiny of Israel, speaking specifically of Israel's discipline as well as Israel's deliverance. They were delivered by a mighty hand. They were disciplined by a mighty hand. All because God's mighty hand was controlling their destiny. Peter picks up on an Old Testament phrase and says, you need to submit yourself to God's mighty hand of destiny in your life when it comes to your deliverance, when it comes to your discipline. Submit yourself to God's mighty hand of discipline and deliverance that he may exalt you at the proper time. God will exalt you at the proper time. And then he says this, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Then he says down in verse number 10, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who calls you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. It makes it very clear that after you've suffered for a little while, you'll be established. You'll be made firm. You'll be solid. But you won't be unless you suffer. Why? Because everything blossoms in a desert experience. But in between there, verse 6 and verse 10, he lets you know that as you submit yourself to God's mighty hand to destiny and you begin to grow spiritually, you are facing an incredible battle. So he says in verse number 8, be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. He says, listen, you, your life is going to be battled 
immensely. Remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11? He says, I am afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve, verse number 3, by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. I am concerned that as the serpent deceived Eve, because he's a master deceiver, as he deceived Eve, he'll deceive you and lead you away from the purity and the simplicity of devotion that you have for the Lord. He says earlier in 2 Corinthians 11, verse number 10, he says, but one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also, for indeed I have forgiven if I have forgiven anything. I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. So that no advantage be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. He's talking to them about how this, this son had committed incest in his family with his mother, and that there was sin rampant in the church, and that you needed to, to discipline him. That's in 1 Corinthians. So evidently, they disciplined him. He'd come back and ask for forgiveness, and he says, this one I've forgiven. You need to forgive him, because if you don't forgive him, we are not ignorant of Satan's schemes. We're not ignorant of Satan's devices. We know how Satan operates. If you don't forgive him, watch out for bitterness. Watch out for vengeance. Watch out for smoldering resentment. Watch out for anger because we're not ignorant of how Satan operates. Paul knew firsthand how Satan could deceive how Satan could cause you to doubt. How Satan does everything he can to destroy everything that God does. And when Satan shows up in Genesis chapter 3, he wants to destroy marriage. Because that was God's design. It's God's institution. And so he did all he could to destroy it. So Paul says in Ephesians 6, verse number 10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Paul knew the struggle. He knew there was a warfare going on. Why? Because Satan is at war with God. And the battlefield is man. That's how it works. Ask Job. Right? God, now Satan's at war with God. If he can destroy Job's testimony, if he can ruin Job's life, he can bring down the credibility of God, but he can't. Because God preserved that man. Watched over that man, protected that man, even though he went through severe affliction. But you and I, your marriage, my marriage, your family, my family, your friends, my friends, that's the battlefield. And Satan is doing everything he can to destroy what God does. In a few weeks, we'll, we're coming up on Halloween. Isn't it interesting the number of 
children that dress up like devils. Some of them maybe are devils. I, I, I don't know. But they dress up like devils. You know, that's one of Satan's ploys to get us to think lightly about the reality of Satan. He does that very effectively. Remember what it says over in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 10? It says, our weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Spiritual warfare is a battle for your mind. All the, 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 the worldly ideologies that permeate our homes through social media, through television, through uh, the internet, all kinds of ways. Satan uses those to, to dumb down our spiritual senses so we're not aware of the things around us that are wrong. To get us to think lightly about sin and the consequences of sin. Oh, Satan's devices are masterful. But remember, Satan is not omniscient. He doesn't know what you're thinking. He's not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at one place. And he doesn't talk to you. Some people think Satan talks to them. No, he doesn't. First of all, you're not that high up in the totem pole for Satan to be talking to you. Okay? Satan doesn't talk to you. But the Bible says, right, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Why? They're of the world. And Satan's the ruler of the world. And the Lord has allowed him to run amok for a while. And Satan will use everything in the world he can at his disposal. Listen, he can't read your mind, but he's well astute to the way man functions. He knows how you function. Why? He has lots of years of experience of watching. So he knows what kind of temptations to put your way. And Satan can use anyone. Satan used Peter in the life of Christ. When Christ would talk about going to the cross and Peter said, no, 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 no. You don't, have any, you, you, you don't know what you're doing. You're not going to die on the cross. And Jesus said, get behind me, Peter. Nope. He said, get behind me, Satan. Why? Because Peter had allowed his mind to think rationally instead of thinking theologically. He could only think about what was best for him, not what was best for the world. And so all he could think of was that the Messiah can't die. What kind of Messiah is that? And Christ says, get thee behind me, Satan, because you don't have in mind the purposes of God. In our marriages, do you know that our spouse can be used by Satan to move us away from the purposes of God. Peter was the righteous man. Peter was the leader of the 12. Peter was a godly man. But when you begin to think the way of the world, when you begin to think 
contrary to the truth of God's word, you're going to lead those astray who want to think according to the word of God. And you've got to be very careful about that. Satan works in all kinds of ways. He perverts God's word. We know that from Matthew chapter 4. He opposes God's word, Zephaniah chapter 3. He hinders God's servants, 1 Thessalonians 2.18. He hinders the spread of the gospel, 2 Corinthians 4, by blinding the mind of the unbeliever. He snares the wicked, 1 Timothy 3. He desires to control nations, Revelation 16. He's described as an angel of light in 2 Corinthians 11. He brought sin into the world, Genesis chapter 3. And the whole world lies in the lap of the evil one. And do you know that every unsaved person that you know is ruled by Satan? How do I know that? Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. Paul makes it very clear that the unbeliever is a child of Satan under the control of Satan. Think about um, in the scriptures when you begin to understand that what did Christ tell the religious leaders in John chapter 8? You are of your father, the devil. He told the religious establishment in Jerusalem that they were of their father, the devil. He called them children of Satan because that's what they were. It's exactly who they were. And even though they were the religious elite in Jerusalem, they had not embraced Christ as their Messiah. And therefore, they were children of wrath, sons of disobedience under the direction of the prince of the power of the air. Satan uses all kinds of people. He uses the unbelievers, your unbeliever at work that you work with, the unbelievers in your family, the unbelievers that are your friends. He even uses believers whose minds are not set on the things of God to move you away from the purposes of God. And when you begin to walk with God in an intimate setting, it will be battled with a diabolical vengeance. You must be aware of that. That's why Paul says, resist him steadfast in the faith. You are nowhere ever in Scripture told to rebuke Satan. Never. You are only to resist him steadfast in the faith. Same thing that Peter says in 1 Peter 5, verse number 8. Resist him firm in the faith. 
He uses a military term. You've seen those, those movies where there, there are long lines of military men. All the guys in the front have shields. And it goes on for thousands of yards. And, and there are five and six and ten and twelve rows deep of all these men. And the front men all have shields. And the men in the back, they have arrows. It's called a phalanx, where they lock arm and arm together. And the only way to defeat the enemy is to break through the phalanx. But if you remain firm and steadfast and leave no gaps in your phalanx, if you resist Satan firm in the faith, you gain the victory. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And the victory comes because we stand firm in the faith. We allow no gaps in our spiritual armor. Whether it's the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the sword of the spirit, the belt that girds everything together, the belt of truth. We, we, we take up the shield of faith and we stand strong against the wiles of the devil. But you've got to be aware that you're going to war. And lastly, and not least, your spiritual growth is beautified in a determined reliance. It is beautified in a determined reliance. In other words, you are determined to trust and obey and rely only on one person, and that's the Lord. You can't rely on your husband. You can't rely on your wife. You can't rely on your kids. You can't rely on your pastor. You can't rely on your elders. You got to rely upon the Lord. Trust only in Him. My wife and I got married 37 years ago. We stood together at our reception, and I thanked everybody for coming. And my wife and I, we would read the Psalms from the day that we were engaged until the day we got married and read them backwards, read them down to Psalm 1. We read it with a purpose to find the Psalm that would best describe our marriage, that we'd want to have as a verse for our, our marriage for the, as long as the Lord gave us together. And we chose Psalm 20, verse number 7, which says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. They shall be brought down and fall, but we shall rise up and stand firm. You must learn to trust in the name and the character and nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust only in Him. That's what the Bible says. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Never lean on your own understanding. Don't do that. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He'll make your path smooth. But you've got to trust in him. You've got to rely upon him. You've got to wait upon him. You have to believe in him. What makes your family, your marriage so beautiful is that there is a determined reliance upon our God. He is everything. Takes you all the way back to the very beginning, right? It's balanced, or it, it begins the divine inheritance. What's the inheritance? It's Christ who is our life. 
we inherit Christ and all that he has to, to give to his children. But we inherit his life. He is our very great reward. Why would we not trust him? Why would we not believe in him? Why would we not lean upon him? Because we need him. So Psalm 127 one says that unless the Lord builds your house, you will labor in vain. You'll labor in vain. You're going to work hard to build your legacy, to build your house with all the energy you can muster up. But if you don't rely upon the Lord to make it happen, it's not going to happen. You need the Lord Jesus Christ to govern every aspect of your life. My prayer for you and me is that we would grow. We'd commit ourselves to growing spiritually. This is a big commitment. It's what every one of us should be committed to every day. And my prayer for all of us is that we would be committed to growing deeper and deeper in our walk with the Lord. And so as we anticipate all that God's going to do, may these principles guide us as we go. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for tonight. A chance to be together. A chance to study your word. A chance, Lord, to once again be reminded of how great you are and what you've called us to do. May we be obedient to you in Jesus' name. Amen.